Hey everyone, welcome to the show. I have my new friend Phil here and we are going to talk about money, the future of money and kind of a thesis that we are sort of debating and unraveling as we go along, uh, which kind of relates to the role of the Federal Reserve, the U.S. Central Bank in kind of the situation that we have right now and kind of how we both are theorizing that this is going to affect things down the road. So welcome, Phil. Uh, probably most of my listeners are new to you. So please tell us a bit about yourself. And yeah. Uh, first of all, Molly, thanks. Yeah. Thanks a lot for having me on the show. Molly and I actually met on uh, Tom Wonga's Slack server, his Patreon-esque thing. And uh, I've kind of been a part of that community for over a year now. I came from the libertarian side of things, Rothbard, all that good stuff. So uh, big into to Bitcoin, uh, sound money, all that stuff. I have my own Substack where I write about this and kind of uh, all the so synthesized kind of what happened in the week of macro geopolitics. That's called QPOL, which stands for Quiet Parts Out Loud. But yeah, my name's Phil Gibson. I've just been like a monetary like freedom nerd for a few years, mostly really since I found Bitcoin about a few years ago. Again, coming from like the free market, you know, stick it to the state sort of thing. But really getting nerdy about the financial plumb and how that works and all these different interest rates. And especially what we'll get into later is, you know, what the Fed and the commercial banks are doing against the rest of the central banks in the world. So it's just been super fascinating. And really over the past year, as we kind of talked about off camera, you know, finding Tom's thesis, like I kind of think of him like people call themselves Rothbardians, Obsessians. And I think like Luongo, like Luongans is going to be a thing because I mean, when you get into libertarianism, there is in, in Bitcoin itself as well. There's a lot of different areas of study because you got the foreign policy, you got the economics and what kind of economics and how it really kind of boils down to like praxeology of how people might not act rationally, but purposefully. And also what, all these different like sister studies around Bitcoin, like game theory and the the tech side of it. I'm not like the biggest tech guy, but um, you know, what, what am I really trying to like lock in? Uh, the oh, so like the Luangan school, I think I I might as well just like call it. It it kind of like takes all that and especially that what I appreciate about his analysis the most is that there are so many people that are not willing to combine the politics and economics whether or not they don't want to ruffle the wrong feathers they don't want to lose subscribers and it's just too uh, alternative for you know the mainstream media yeah i don't and think you can look at economics or mar financial markets and not take into account geopolitics because they absolutely play a big role yeah i mean you're going to put your money here because of a regulation some country passed and how that kind of ripples through everything. It's the John Locking invisible hand. So uh, Tom is just like very ardent about no, like you can't separate the two or else you're being intellectually dishonest. Like I'm not putting, putting words in his mouth. Those are my words. Like either you're ignorant or you're lying <laughs> as, as frank as I can be. There's a couple other things, and I'd like to dig into his thesis in a minute. I want to sort of set up our conversation. But another thing that Tom surprised me with, expanded my thinking, was this idea that sort of all the global elites are like on the same team. And that's mm -hmm. very naive and simplistic. It's more like yeah. the mob 
where there's a lot of crime families. Sometimes they're aligned. Often they fight with each other. Yeah. And that sort of lens has been helpful. All right. But we had a specific thing that prompted this discussion today. So I want to just give help everybody else get up to speed. So I was pondering how the U.S., whether it be the Fed or the Treasury, would get American citizens to embrace a CBDC. Like there aren't a lot of benefits for consumers if we were to move to programmable money where all of these restrictions could potentially be programmed in. So I was like, how could they sell us on that? I We saw during 2020 that people will kind of bend over pretty quickly to force compliance, but not everybody. And there's a lot more people woken up that I think at this stage should just introduce a programmable monetary system. There'd be a lot of pushback. People would be like, no, thanks. We're not going to do it. So one sort of avenue I went down was, well, what if they made that mo- that form of money more valuable? Like they did some kind of exchange where instead of it being one-to-one, they made it something like four-to-one or 50-to-one. Like who knows what that would be? But one thing we do know from 2020 is that people like free money. Like not a lot of people turn down stimulus checks and PPP money if they were given it because it feels like everyone else is getting free money. You're most people are going to want that too. So I wrote this long thread about a potential kind of arrangement where CBDCs could be introduced, not in a one-to-one, but the only real way that kind of made a lot of sense was if the US dollar continued to lose its value to the point where inflation was so high that there was concern about buying power. And they were like, hey, we have this new currency. We're going to do like a revaluation where we're going to now kind of fix inflation by introducing a new monetary system. And Phil did not agree with my thesis. So we said, hey, why don't we get on to a podcast and debate that? So Phil, based on sort of that hypothesis or it's not even hype, it's just a potential scenario that the US could introduce a retail CBDC to people and do it with some kind of response to hyperinflation. What was your kind of reaction to that? Yeah, so I have a few thoughts and just a couple off the top of my head, just listening to you kind of lay everything out. So sure, the state might do something to make it's more appealing to the masses to use that currency, but it all depends on the actual trust that people have in the state. Because at the end of the day, like, yes, money is something sound and all of the principles of money that you can go down the road. But at the end of the day, it's like, do you trust your government and what is forcing you or compelling you to use that money. At the end of the day, it's all central planning. They're not they as idealistic as I would like to be. And there are circumstances that might get them to the point of where they want to have like a more commodity backed, like sounder money standard. Okay. I I don't think that they'll, it, especially with, with the CBDC, it will have to get some really hard con- convincing for people to actually do that because i mean what what can what can they do to make something more valuable it's either they're gonna have to it's gonna be it's gonna have to be super compelling where it you know it don't use a currency or, or else like they can't make it more valuable uh, other than than by force or restricting the supply which to me just kind of sounds kind of silly um so well- mm-hmm. So they, one way that they can kind of force it is to go through employers, right? If they right. tell major employers, you have to pay your employees in this new form of money, 
what is an employee going to do? You can't, you're not going to reject your paycheck. And the vast majority of Americans have a job that where they receive a paycheck. Yeah. So that was sort of my thought is you don't, who cares what the citizens want? If the employers all of a sudden make a mandate, we're going to pay you in this new thing and right. you, are, you have to pay your taxes in this new thing. It's kind of hard if you want to participate in society to yeah. not use that money. Now you could say, well, I'm just going to get that money and then switch it over to Bitcoin or whatever t- money I want. But we don't even know if the CBDC would allow that. That's sort of sure. one of the programmable features. Right. And that might be something that Congress the government wants, but will the banks be for that? And that's basically where I'm coming at this. So before okay. we get any, any further, I just want to differentiate the difference between uh, CBDC at the retail level and wholesale level. Okay. So retail is basically central bank money they hold and then into your pocket. No in between whatsoever, no commercial banks, no creation of private capital between commercial banks and issuing loans and that's the thing that is so sacred to the commercial banking system and the federal reserve system itself now at the wholesale level that's basically how banks settle up between each other or replacing the inefficiencies that you have in swift they're definitely going to do that i think they are working on things like that whether that's using usdc or adopting some things like that i mean there's um I can't. Is it pro, pro, the Guardian Protocol? I. They have a new you, one called uh, Project Cedar that they just released this yes. weekend. That was and the I'm New York Fed, and that that's a completely different conversation because I think they're using the Lightning Network, and Lightning Network is agnostic to the protocol of what you use. It could be on Bitcoin, Ethereum, like whatever. But it, it's funny because they they use Rust, and like Rust Lightning is like coded in Rust. And they use HTLCs, which is hash time lock contracts, which is like what Lightning Network to, to Bitcoin uses. So it's really interesting. Like they're really looking into the stuff. And that would only make sense that they would find some new innovation to just make their life a bit easier. But if you implement a CBDC at the retail level, you're getting rid of the, of the commercial banks. The commercial banks are the shareholders of the Federal Reserve. Like that's why the Fed was created in the first place, because the Fed essentially it's the one that gives out the reserves to the commercial banks and then they fractional reserve use those reserves and that's how they quote unquote like print money but like they will lever up you know you know 10 to 1 or whatever whatever the uh, ratio might be and they will create credit by issuing loans and so basically this monetary transmission mechanism is sacred to the Federal Reserve System itself. What Davos, ECB, World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, or the Rothschilds, or whoever in the CFR that is like backing this idea of you'll own nothing to be happy, a great reset, they want to destroy the commercial banks. And they, as Palm and others say, they want to take their colonies back because America never actually, I am now firmly convinced that America never became independent because freaking George Washington himself was still getting dividends from the Bank of England. And so our monetary system has long up until arguably this year and last year has long been entrenched and tied to the ball and chain that is this global monetary system created by arbitrate uh created arbitrarily by some central planners that meet at the city of London. 18 panel banks decide what the world's interest rate's going to be. 
which is what the, the touchstone of that interest rate used to be LIBOR. LIBOR stands for the London Interbank Overnight Rate. And that's what banks would charge each other. And there have been scandals in LIBOR where they you know manipulate it low. And it's just, it's not a free market rate, if you will. And that kind of dictated everybody's monetary policy. All the debt was indexed to LIBOR. So when you've got Jerome Powell trying to raise rates in 2018, there was a snafu that happened. Markets didn't like that. And what was going on is, for example, if we try to raise rates, banks overseas in Europe would, you know, catch a cold. They would go up. They would blow out to the upside. Maybe it's two and a half and it goes to 5%. Well, because we're also tied to that monetary system, the same thing would happen here. So you would feel that that increase in rates in your credit card, your mortgage, all the stuff. LIBOR itself is a globalist idea. I mean, it's just kind of global monetary communism. And 18 of those panel banks, only one of them represented the interests of the United States, which was J.P. Morgan, the J.P. Morgan branch over there. And it's really just interesting now that we're no longer indexed LIBOR, like Tom Longo goes into this, but just for lack of, I'll just kind of narrow this down. We're not indexed LIBOR anymore. We're indexed now a very America first, if you will, centric interest rate, which is SOFR, the secure overnight financing rate, uh, rate or funding rate. And that rate is not dictated by 18 panel banks at the city of London that they just arbitrarily pull out their ass for whatever incentive they have. That rate is actually dictated by the commercial banks of what they charge. It is, it's a secured rate because you have secured debt and unsecured debt. Like this secured rate is based off actual, arguably free market activity, something that is based on something real. And it is U.S. domestic only. And what you basically have is you're saying you have the U.S. banks and the feds standing up and saying, no, go scratch. We're not going to bail out the world anymore because we're going to raise rates and we need to earn our credibility back because as as, uh, people have talked about already, COVID was basically like this global commie psyop out of Davos to blackmail the Fed because Congress is ran by Davos and basically forced them to deficits. Congress tried to force the Fed to deficit spend itself into oblivion with the things like the, the build back better bills and all this stuff, because the way that these globalists take their colonies back is to bankrupt the financial system and the basically King that runs that financial system, which is the Fed. And just out of pure incentive, Jerome Powell, Jamie Dimon, all those shareholders of the Fed basically telling Powell, like, hey, uh, we like being around and we're not going to kowtow to what Davos wants. We're not going to go along with with Christine Lagarde and having throwing in uh, in addition to our dual mandate of of stable uh, full employment and stable prices. We're not going to throw in climate change in there either. Because as you and I know, Molly, we saw Jamie Dimon basically stand up to Rashid Tlaib and say, uh, no, we're not going to divest from oil and gas because that would, quote unquote, be paving a road to hell for America. So, yeah, we're now here to where you got a radical libertarian like myself saying Jerome Powell is my pal, I think, because uh, someone in, in Tom's group did a genealogy on him and he's apparently eighth generation Virginian aristocracy. 
like the dudes that funded the American Revolution. And they we might actually still live in a world in America where there are patriots running this shit. And the Fed is off the reservation. Things are different this time, as trite and cliche as that sounds. But Powell's kind of lined everything up by ridding America away from, from LIBOR and us that giving the United States room to raise rates and just just the amount of capital and how strong the American economy is compared to, to Europe. Like Europe depends on the, the current commercial banks are there for financing. Whereas if you compare something to like Apple, they can basically finance themselves by issuing debt to the public. And so you just kind of have this like more robust capital independence economy in America versus Europe. And basically what I'm trying to do is let people know that you do have, as, as Tom likes to say, you got giants fighting giants and you got these European globalist commies going up against America, like the spirit of the America that is still within the the blood of the elites that are running it. And at the end of the day, you know, I've, I've come to this realization it's kind of Machiavellian, maybe Hans Hermann Hoppe-esque. But you, at the end of the day, you need to support the elites that are going to give you the best deal. You know, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. And 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 I think Jerome Powell and you know, God willing, that we actually get some America First-esque Republicans in Congress and the Senate with the midterms coming. I actually feel that people are taking a stance. And it goes beyond the financial stuff. They are tired of sending their kids off to, you know, learn about critical race theory and tranny whatever. And you're having the American culture rot from the inside out with these just demoralizing communist tactics. And it go that and, and that's why I actually have a glimmer of optimism and hope for the people that are gonna steer us in the right direction. So just to kind of catch everybody else up to this Tom thesis that we both are pretty familiar with is that there's sort of two factions in the elites, many factions, but two in the heart of this issue. One is a European led kind of aristocratic class who has a history money, the oligarchs, they have a history of being colonizers. You know, they love to colonize Africa and uh, the U S and South America uh, because they can, benefit off the resources that these countries produce. And they sort of have this incredible arrogance about them that everyone else is sort of the hired help and that they deserve to rule the world. But then this sort of Tom thesis was that, well, there's this American aristocracy that doesn't really want to be subservient to this European crowd. So they're essentially rebelling and saying, no, we're not going to help fund your takeover of your Great Reset agenda. But the one thing I'm not super clear on, Phil, maybe you can help figure this out with me is sure. all right let's say powell and co get they win what does that look like what does that look like so again i'm kind of new to all these ideas i mean it, the thing that comes to my mind is that the, the dollar index goes to 150 which would be completely unprecedented like that's just one of the big numbers that tom and others in our in our uh in our cult if you want to call it that it like throws out like right now i think it's in the one like hundred teens or something right now. Basically, it's it's the uh the it's the dollar milkshake theory where we're seeing it right now. We're seeing capital flight out of Europe and that's gonna go to 
the dollar and U.S. treasuries and your safe haven assets like gold and precious metals and commodities, oil, Bitcoin, and really the Dow. Because right now we're seeing Europe cash rate itself, as I I like to say, and money moves where it's treated best. So you're going to get all of this capital flow into the United States. But, you know, what what does that really look like if the value of the dollar is so strong and no one wants to trade with us? Like, we're going to have to be self-sufficient somehow. And earlier uh, this week, I I think uh, once Sunday was yesterday, today's Monday, we're recording this. I saw someone sharing in in Slack that there was was a Zero Hedge article where um, where people in in companies in Europe are going to have to start you know, offshoring into the U.S. And so maybe that's one way that we can be self-sufficient and uh, rebuild our industrial society. But we still have to take care of things like the 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 debt, you know, the the whatever trillion dollar deficit, like domestically $31 trillion and how we balance that. And we have all these liabilities and, and pensions and things that we need to pay out as well. There is a um, there's a great YouTube channel. It's called Heresy uh, Heresy Capital. I forget the guy's name, but he does a really and I, I want to do a write up on this because I think there's more that we can expand on that. Okay. But it's basically like the five ways to turn America around, and he make he lays out these really great arguments that I think are really plausible. So I'm not gonna list all five. Well, maybe I will. Uh, but one, how do you how do you take care of Social Security and and and, and pensions? And it's basically just getting rid of it. I mean, I, we spend like $900 billion a year on uh, Medicare. And if we cut it to like $400 billion, there's plenty to go around. And when it comes to Social Security and your pension, how much you pay in, I mean, I I think we might be about the same generation, uh, Molly. But I mean, Gen X and below kind of realize that they're really not going to get shit in what they pay into at their job. And whatever they do get get back, will it matter or will things be so hyperinflated by that time? And so this is why it's so important to get kind of America first people in Washington, because I think that we desperate times have come for desperate measures to cut back on things like that. We already have other programs like Medicaid and supplemental um, income, which those programs already exist and they're available on a and like by need basis instead of what age you are. And right now, all that we're doing is we're wasting our money and fattening up the inheritance of all the boomers. And when they die, they can like pass that on. Like I'm all for generational wealth. Like that's what Bitcoin is all about. But I would be much more pro a more economically rational uh, method of doing so and all these programs are kind of a i mean they originated from fdr right but just kind of a, this globalist communist you know extraction of wealth from the middle class i mean we are funneling out our middle class as, as we speak and i think that there are ways i mean again we're gonna have to get our fiscal ducks in a row but that kind of assumes that we're gonna get a government who stops stealing <laughs> yeah Stop right and, and, and it, it feels i feel like an idiot like thinking that this stuff can actually happen but maybe we're up against the wall at this point i mean with with what Powell's done the way that we defeat davos is that we bankrupt them and Powell's done that by removing 
trillions of dollars of uh, almost, you know, close to $3 trillion of base zero money from the world economy. Because Davos' source of power is something called the offshore dollar markets, the euro dollar system, shadow banking, whatever. And what that basically is, is that you have these banks that aren't in America that get base zero money, U.S. treasuries, uh, not U.S. treasuries, U.S. reserves in their bank, and they can lever those up and they can print arguably more dollars than the, the Fed itself can. And I say Fed because like when money printing happens, that's not those aren't Fed bucks. Those are Congress bucks. Those are, you know, Fed bucks because uh, that's the fiscal end and the Federal Reserve takes care of monetary policy. So that I want to delineate that as well because okay. Congress, Treasury, that's all fiscal policy. They vote on, oh, we're going to have like $6 trillion of build back better. We're all going to front load it in a year when we're just going to ruin the credibility of the United States. That's fiscal. Federal Reserve's got to react to that. And Powell reacted to that by, as Tom talks about, raising the what's called the reverse repo rate. Basically, if anyone's familiar with money markets or, you know, like even a CD account, you got extra cash, you want to park it in that account and you have your money work for you. Money market takes it and invests it and they give you like whatever percent back. So the same thing basically applied with the reverse repo. So all these banks that had base zero, like, reserves that they use a fractional print away from the rules of America because they aren't the same jurisdiction. They were basically incentivized to take all this excess cash that they had because all this excess like reserves and cash was latent inflation, right? Money was printed. Where's it going to go? So basically Powell was able to sterilize all the money that was printed in the world as far as whatever was denominated in dollars and send it over to an account at the Fed to gain five bips, five basis points above what the Fed funds rate, like the benchmark rate for United States debt, which was influenced by LIBOR until this year when we have SOFR, finally. So basically, everybody that had excess cash around the world was incentivized to like get yield on it, higher yield than anywhere else in the market at the Fed. So Powell basically just sucked trillions of dollars um, out of the world economy, and that's why People are quote unquote biblically short dollars. I, I mean, like another like Tomism that's fucking brilliant. Uh, I'm sorry, can I swear? You're good. Okay, cool. So, um, basically, him sucking all this liquidity out of the market also destroyed, is destroying the offshore dollar markets. And the offshore dollar markets or the shadow banking system, uh, I really encourage people to read Daniel Martinez booth, Fed Up. She is a former Federal Reserve insider at the Dallas Fed, or as as a, it's colloquially known, surprisingly, as the free market Fed. Um, she basically talks about this in her, in her book, The Great Financial Crisis of 2008. Yes, it was due to low interest rates and incentivized people to take on more debts and mortgage-backed securities kind of like being blown up. But the money that blew that up didn't come exclusively from America. Most of it was transferred through the offshore dollar markets. All these people, and it wasn't just like treasury reserves either. I mean, I keep saying treasury. It wasn't just um, base zero like dollar reserves that they're leveraging up. I mean, they were doing making leveraged loans off of like a silly example in uh, in her book. What would be something like we're gonna make a security out of 
David Bowie royalties. And we're going to leverage that up to create more money out of that. And basically all this credit money happened offshores and flooded America. Because again, where's money going to move? It's going to move to where it's treated best. So is this mostly non-US banks then who were issuing all these loans? Yeah, it's the Euro dollar system. I hate calling it that. I'd rather call it the offshore dollar market because that is more accurate to what it is. It's called the Euro dollar system. And I mean, people can go check out Jeff Snyder formerly of, of Lombra Partners. I don't know where he is now, but basically Lombra, I believe, got rid of him because he was is secretly against SOFR because the, the idea of SOFR destroys uh, LIBOR. All the liquidity is going to leave LIBOR go into SOFR. And uh, the Eurodollar system indexes its debt to LIBOR. So, of course, it's not in Jeff Snyder's incentive to create this business called the Eurodollar University when SOFR created by the commercial banks in the u.s basically come in and say uh fuck you uh your euro dollar system isn't a free market reaction to what the fed does it's basically this globalist rate that is being used to print more dollars than the fed itself can and come in and ruin our economy and the euro dollar system is how people like george soros are able to buy up politicians and overthrow governments and all this shit so you know Euro dollar system, bad. LIBOR, bad. SOFR, good. <laughs> um, um, uh, I, I what were some of his other, okay. for that guy, the five scenarios podcast, what were some of the other scenarios that he outlined? Oh, so to turn America around, like basically get rid of Medicare and uh, Medicaid and uh, if basically cut that in half or more and get people back, you know, their, their, their dollars. Um, incentivize kids to not have to go to university. So cut universal spending, university spending. Uh, again, this kind of goes into you know low interest rate policy makes it feasible for any pre college kid to go get a loan and go to school for some bullshit degree. Um, you know incentivize trade schools, all this stuff, and also spend less on on the military. And I think with the whole Russia Ukraine thing, it's the idea of going to war is putting a bad taste in Americans' mouth. And we have people like Douglas McGregor talking about this stuff openly too. And Scott Ritter, people that are proud patriots. I mean, Scott Ritter was practically Top Gun, like Tom Cruise from Top Gun, like literally. And, you know, proud, like red, white, and blue-blooded Americans speaking up against these wars that aren't in the interest of America. And, um, and then the last point was end the Fed. Now, yeah, I'm a libertarian at heart. That is the end goal to end the Fed. Central banking, the manipulation of the money supply from a top level and having basically a cartel over all commercial banks. It's not the best model, really. But again, like we can't let perfect be the enemy of good. And so what I'm interested in, what I get fed up with, and what Tom gets fed up with is people like Peter Schiff and even Bitcoiners to some extent, where they're like, oh, well, all of it's just a fucking, you know, like the, like, like the George Carlin quote, like it's all one big club and you're not in it. It's like, well, there's more nuance there. You've got Team Fed versus Team Davos. And what is what is that transition like, right? Now, sure, we can be right and we can be bitter and just be smug and and just sit on our, our golden Bitcoin because eventually it's going to win and take over. And it, it's also pretty healthy to not get as into this stuff like you and i do uh but you know we're kind of 
reliant on it to one we're incentivized to learn more we we have a thirst for knowledge and also if you're lucky enough you can be successful make your livelihood off of this but it's also important to you know be active in your local community and and support one another that way but you know what does the conversation actually look like between getting out of the situation that we're in and the fed trying to assert financial independence and and I mean, just like what what does that look like and you and i might not be able to to tomorrow make a statement and have a policy switch on like a light in our favor but as as tom and others talk about having conversations like this openly in in the, the town square is one way to get these ideas into the zeitgeist and politics is downstream from culture as michael malice likes to say and so if we can have this open dialogue and get people thinking about this stuff. And again, like we're we're fucking like nerds, Molly, like we we are. But yes. but but again, I I think conversations like this are super helpful and, and constructive. And this thesis, why I'm so attached to it, is it's not like a doom and gloom thesis. It's well, again like nuance is the word of the year. There's two things that I think relate to this. I'm not trying to be doom and gloom. Yeah. I just so I'm, I got kind of hooked on hopium a, a while ago that there was sort of this group of people in the, the shadows who were going to come and save everybody. And I sort of woke up from that type of mm. sort of like white hat versus black hat kind of thing that was sort of making the rounds for a couple of years. I think uh, it's like two things gray that I, hat versus red hat. Yeah. <laughs> red being commie and then gray just it's all based on their their bottom line. And so, oh. good. I was going to say one thing that kind of concerns me about this Tom thesis is that it kind of requires the U.S. government to all of a sudden become fiscally responsible mm-hmm. and no longer abuse this power power to print money. And we've and seen then, when you give people that power, it's very, very difficult to keep that in check. Yeah. Yeah. And and so if the, the one and a half like amendment that I want to make to that video with the five points of how to fix America is, is to uh, one way to of course balance the budget other than cutting all these programs is as, as uh, Tom and Judy Shelton have uh, discussed is remonetizing gold by issuing 50 and 100 year treasury bonds and having a percentage of that coupon payout be in gold and i i I haven't really thought this through all the way it's still something i want to dive deep into but basically the value of gold is going to have to go up and so they'll be able to pay out i guess like a less amount of gold because you know per unit ounce whatever it's going to be more valuable so they pay out less gold and they'll also have to pay out less dollars as well and it just makes balancing uh the books easier and more feasible but I, I I don't think that that they'll be opposed to you know, using Bitcoin as a, a way to back treasuries as well. And this is all just like speculation. Right. We, now, we don't really know what's going to happen. Oligarchs, they might not have a lot of cash, but they own a lot of stuff. Yeah. They own a lot of gold. So if we yeah. make if all of a sudden gold becomes tremendously more valuable, will that not provide the funding solution that the Davos crowd needs? Yeah, that's why we need to bankrupt them first and then monetize gold. 
and this is and i wrote a thing on my subject too and and um and if you want in like the show notes i can mm-hmm. let your your listeners read the like rebuttal uh article that i wrote to your your thesis but um i wrote on my my subsec uh, it was called all that glitters is paper gold um but basically saying that yeah the, the Dobbs crowd just has shit on on their books i mean just like all euro debt it, it's worth nothing just on like the, the trust of europeans have in the ecb and that's another reason why team fed basically set up and said no to Davos because in 2019 commercial banks began stopping accepting euro debt as collateral to give them reserves in exchange and those reserves again remember is what these offshore banks in Europe, China, wherever, were able to use to leverage up and create those euro dollars, the offshore dollars. But because they have trashy debt, and it's almost like they have a fixed amount, like like a fixed Bitcoin supply, it's not really. But you always hear things about like Lagarde having to sell German debt to bail out uh, Italian debt, and and it's just a clusterfuck, frankly. Okay. And just, oh, go ahead. Yeah, so I mean, because they have nothing on the balance sheet, it's just like trust and, and BS and inflation. They need the price of gold to go up, and that's what Balls of the Three basically does for them. Mm-hmm. But that's why we're kind of like relying on PAL to do our job for us in bankrupting the European commie oligarchs. And then once all the capital flight leaves Europe after that, because why would anybody with money on the Isle of Man even want to invest it back in Europe? It's going to move to America. The, the Dow, and we kind of see this after every rate hike, right? Because I mean, news comes out, pal talkish, ah, so we kind of have like a a dip, and then like the next day, I think people like buy up that dip, and a lot of that buying up is coming from capital flight as well. And I, t- I think Tom and Martin Armstrong say the one indicator to actually notice if capital flight is happening is looking at the Dow because it's the the Dow Jones is like the deepest, most liquid, uh index of of markets in in america like bigger than the s&p too um but uh, you'll you'll see that happen and you also see people rushing into treasuries and so that whole yule curve inversion thing's gonna start turning around maybe and then gold and 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 what i hope is uh bitcoin as well and and, and, and that is also when uh america will want to remonetize gold because okay. when Europe has basically like nothing, that's 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 kind of like the the signal that the commercial banks will send to themselves. Because Michael Barr, who is also in the Fed, not as senior on the FOMC as Powell, but he has publicly stated that Basel III will be implemented in the U.S. in January, which Goldbugs mm. got very bullish on that because it would, could stop the of twenty three. Yeah, that's like a couple months from now. Yeah. I keep finding articles and they are always like from years back and from whenever that article was written, it's like, oh yeah, by this time next year, we'll have, and they just like keep like kicking the can down the road. Like, Which is like, possible. The, the he said that this summer. Yeah, I I, I guess. Maybe it's I, just like more of like the Vosian wordplay in, in the media to, you know, keep their markets afloat with hopium. I don't know. But I mean, we'll we'll definitely see. I mean- because they had to make their great reset 2050 now to 2030, they're desperate for any solution that they can get. That's true. So, I mean, that that's all like 
central banks have on their hands is is markets and, and trust and rhetoric and just you know hand waving and magicianry if that's a word all right so we've seen that there are multiple factions in this aristocratic cartel we have the davos crowd the u.s patriotic crowd how do you see china and russia which are their own cartels now they form this BRICS alliance are they going to pick a side or are they a third independent group in your view so BRICS is probably its own thing and again they're only partnering up because they're done with the west i mean just think of again like davos europe and the davos trolls that are running america because we never america never really did assert its independence from the crown but i mean BRICS. Yeah, like they they are setting up that bifurcation. They're probably going to create their own currency backed by commodities out of uh, you know Russia, whether that's energy, gold, Bitcoin, whatever. And it's really all just because they are tired with the Western colonial rules based order rather than international law, where every country was able to just go on their way and be sovereign and get along and whatever. And of course, that was just. Uh, rhetoric and so this this bifurcation is just a reaction to that and so i i think that china and russia and again i I like to kind of dig deeper into you know what what china's angle is about about it but uh again they're they're um at at best uh minor enemies or whatever the the quote is um but it's just uh like keep keep your uh, your friends close and, and your enemies closer, and they just all share kind of the, the same incentive of you know self sovereignty. And uh, China is actually really dependent on Russia as far as their commodities go. Okay, and you just keep seeing more people get added to to this list. Like Saudi Arabia has basically said to you know the United States to go pound sand and. There goes the petrodollar, and you kind of mentioned that in your thread too. Mm-hmm. So again, they're they're just uh, they're just 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 kind of forced to all gain up together and go against uh, the West and their imperial escapades. Because essentially, they do want that the West, Davos, wants to have the whole like McKinder Heartland theory come to a, a realization. Like they want the greater continent, world island of Eurasia. And I think this is really deep seated and frankly racism. Like, and even some of these Europeans think that Russians are like sleeper cell Asians, uh, just through breeding over like the centuries. And so they all just look at them as like dirt people. And I I do think it is that that ideological deep seated racism and hatred, and just centuries of trying to use their financial system of fractional reserve banking against them and using tactics like what John Perkins talks about in Confessions of Economic Hitman and just exploiting countries wherever they can. I mean, they, they tried to do that with, you know, the, the heroin trade in Asia and how they overthrew the Russian government and how Putin was kind of like a godsend to Russia because he came from this hermetically sealed deep state within the KGB which had a very nationalist focus. And so it's kind of like terrorism, like uh, 
I forget who came up with it, but it's just like um, like terrorism math. Like you bomb one village in the Middle East and you create a hundred more terrorists. And so that's kind of what BRICS is. It's a reaction to this neo-colonial, just old, stemming from old European oligarch money and uh, them trying to depopulate the world, right? I mean, how is that not what they're doing based on the COVID vax and and all this stuff. It's it's Malthusian at at its finest. And so BRICS and even the American sovereignists within the United States are standing up against the. So does it look like all of the other cartels are ganging up on Davos together? Do you think they're aligned? Like is Powell, Putin and Xi for the purposes of this particular mission on the same page? Yeah, I think, and I recently wrote about this in my some report. It's just kind of like a the like the the weeks like top three things that happen macro and geopolitics. But uh, others have talked about this too. But I think that there is a tacit coordination, not like explicit, of course. But you know, you've got the Fed bankrupting Europe, and then you have um, you have Russia starving them of energy and now food because they backed out of that UN Green Deal as well and again it's all a reaction against these global globalist commies it's as simple as that like i know i'm sounding trite but it really is that simple i mean politics is basically i forget where this comes from i think one of like it from one of those like dissident right philosophers but politics is basically the relationship between like who's a friend and who's a foe and then it's just kind of broken down from praxeology. Like, why are humans acting? Like, they're incentivized to like, reach this goal, and who's getting in the way of that? And you have this ideology of global commies out of Europe that basically want to depopulate the world and have their golden billion and have a golden million ruling over that global billion because they they just want like all the energy and, and the resources, and, and that's why they're against efficient energy and having our own generators in our backyard because that makes us ungovernable and independent of their diktat. So it's really just as simple as that. So what do you think this means for someone listening who lives in Europe? Like what's the prognosis for Europe? I am sending my thoughts and prayers. I, I'm actually uh, like when it comes to people like Georgia Maloney and, and I mean, from, from what I've heard, uh, the, the Swedes are pretty based, if you will. And like the Yellow Jacket protests never stopped either. And so I think that you're going to see just a wave of nationalism and sovereignty within Europe because it, it's just, again, as, as silly and try as it sounds, it's just common sense. Like people don't want to go along with this. I think like you have American sovereignists in the United States. I think you have sovereignists within each government in in Europe that are fighting against this. So each kind of group has to stand up and fight for their own independence. I mean, you know, be, I guess I I can't really speak on Europe because I I, I don't live there, but I mean, if you're looking for something like what, what is actionable, um, I don't know underground gun markets or just you know try to be get to know your local community uh if you can get your hands on gold or or bitcoin definitely look into that 
it might Again, even be- I can't really like speak on on Europe's behalf because I know it's not going to be easy for them. I mean, one simple thing that people can do that's not really that risky is just continue to use cash. Like, yeah, resist this movement because if I do, I study a lot about CBDCs. It's kind of why that thread was originally written. There's a lot of data points showing that CBDCs will be introduced in Europe and the UK first. Yeah. I mean, it's going to happen there before it ever happens here. But so if you make that impossible for that to be successful, then that kind of nips this dystopian agenda in the bud a little bit. Yeah, and and I did write about this in uh, my quote unquote rebuttal, if you will. But you basically have like a committee of commercial banks and even credit unions earlier this year basically stress why we don't want or why they don't want a CBDC at the retail level. Again, they lose their job, like their purpose as commercial banks and credit unions and the creation of private capital goes away. And it's just controlled by some commie at the IMF essentially. And, and I don't think it's so much taxes that gives us, our public services like roads and parks and whatever. I, I think a lot of that actually stems from investors in these smaller or banks or just commercial banking as itself. And the, again, the creation of private capital through the creation of loans. So as much as we hate banks, banking is going to be around for a good while. And when you introduce something like Silver to where you basically have this free market rate determined by the banks, I, I actually think that you can't have a responsible banking ecosystem. But I, I don't see a CBDC being enacted in the United States anytime soon just because of the incentives that are in place. Because Tom talks about this, the commercial banks are the largest largest lobbying firm in the world. It's not the military and industrial complex. Like Who do you think writes those checks? The banks. So not only that, but... Like Lil Brainerd said in uh, this piece that it would take probably three years to actually get the tech laid out. And if anybody remembers the Obamacare website and how much of a disaster that was, I think we're only going to see that with the CBDC, but you know, maybe worse. I mean, you're trying to scale out how each person is going to have their bank account app thing in their pocket and the central bank is going to be able to just take care of all that for you. I, I don't see that happening. I don't really see, I can't imagine what kind of regulations the commercial banks would have to be like lockstep in tow with if they were to still survive and help facilitate a CBDC from the fed. But I, I just don't see it really happening. And in like a, like a tech project like that, if you're a developer, like the, the saying is it, Whatever your deadline is, multiply that by five. And so, you know, Lil said three years, you know, multiply that by five. It might take 15 years for us to see a CBDC ready to be fully scaled out. Yeah. I mean, I think they've been building one for years. Uh, I mean, Stellar blockchain and XRP Ledger are both blockchains where private ledgers can be hosted on them and they do market mm -hmm. those ledger blockchains as being suitable for a CBDC because mm -hmm. you you want to have a, a network that's stable, but you want to build your own private network on there so that 
you get to decide who gets the money. I mean, that's sort of the idea with the CBDC. The central bank has this authority to issue the money. They don't want, um, it's not a truly open network. They also don't, you know, they want to be able to see what the transactions are, but they don't necessarily want the public to be able to see everyone's transactions. So they call them private public blockchains or permission blockchains. And uh, yeah, so I think that technology has been around for a while. Mm-hmm. And even the Boston Fed had this thing called Project Hamilton, which was looking into a U.S. retail CBDC. And that started a while ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the th- one of the theories was that they were sort of waiting for some kind of major financial crash to implement it so that it looked like the solution to a problem. Yeah. Kind of that problem, problem reaction solution mantra. So it, I guess, I, though, based on what I, we just discussed, are you pretty confident that the U.S. is going to stay on fiat currency, like, indefinitely? Yeah, I mean, we're not going to again, turn on a light switch and we're all on a Bitcoin standard. Like what does that transition look like? And so I think you ease your way into that by having a basket of commodities of some sort to increase the value of treasuries because that's, I mean, the the government has a lot of uh, treasury coupons to uh, pay out and they'll have to roll over that debt. So how do you do that in the least painful way possible? But just going back to, you know, what you said about the Boston Fed and this and that, monetary policy is dictated from the New York Fed. So there might all be all these academic papers and even some of the ones I like about how Bitcoin Lightning Network as money, I think, out of the St. Louis Fed. That's great, but it very well could have been just an economic paper to write someone's paycheck. Like, that's just me talking out of my ass. I don't have any idea. But what happens as far as where monetary policy comes from and where it's decided, that's determined from the New York Fed. I mean, that's the most powerful of the 12 regional Fed banks. And that's where, uh, you know, JP Morgan and Citibank and all the Wall Street banks are headquartered as well. And that's where they coordinate all this policy. And that is where the creation of SOFR sent from. And that's why you have um, John Williams, who I think was the head of the San Francisco Fed. And I wrote about this in one of my subsects too. But he basically kind of like, it's kind of like he came up with this idea called Art Star, which was basically like a uh, another form of like a natural created interest rate between market activity. And it was kind of like predating SOFR. And it's just kind of surprising. You think that he would come, someone with that idea would come from some place like the free market Fed in Dallas. Because the flyover state Fed areas are kind of like more... Uh, Milton Friedman, even like Mises asking thinking. Mm-hmm. And then you have all these West Coast and East Coast, like um, you, you call them saltwater fed and like freshwater fed, as Daniel DiPartini and Booth talks about in your book. And the saltwater feds are just more Keynesian. And so I think it's really, it says a lot if you have John Williams coming up with these kind of free market esque ideas, working at a Keynesian saltwater fed. Now, president at the federal reserve bank in new york where monetary policy is dictated and i don't think that the fed would would use ripple unless if they were able to get regulatory capture over it because they want to ideally probably have someone like jp morgan own ripple instead of like stellar or whatever i know that jp morgan owns consensus i don't know if consensus is stellar or or that but now they're more ethereum yeah yeah well i mean whatever it is they're gonna want to be in control over that 
And there's another theory, kind of tangential, maybe this is a completely different conversation, but USDC, like Circle, and their stablecoin, USDC, USD Circle, I think, and there's this great cat on Twitter, Hodder McGew, I don't know if anyone's heard of him, but I'm in a lot of Twitter spaces, and he was he's been having a couple lately, and he sees USDC replacing the euro dollar itself. Because as all liquidity leaves LIBOR, goes into SOFR, all this and that, the sooner that happens, the better, because there'll be less liquidity that goes into uh, USDC. But USDC is also backed by short-duration treasuries and some cash reserves as well. But it's also just like a crypto thing that can be created arbitrarily, just like any any DLT, decentralized ledger technology, whatever. The USDC is basically just a poker chip, right? Where you have some sort of asset and they issue a mirror token that's supposed to be a one. Well, yeah, but it's actually backed by something like short duration treasuries, even like Tether, I think. But I think Tether like sold all their treasuries. Theory though, when you go to a casino, your poker chips are backed because you give them a hundred bucks. Yeah. I guess you could win more poker chips that aren't necessarily backed, but your initial allocation is backed. Yeah, perhaps. But, but yeah, um, circle. So there's a lot of people who have the thesis that I. I mean, just, just like just, just just to like close off what I was saying, the faster that the Fed can raise interest rates and bankrupt BlackRock, which I'm fully on board with Martin Armstrong and Tom Longo when they have this idea of how BlackRock only controls, it just has assets under management, trillions, like whatever the hell it is, the amount, but that ownership can be transferred to someone else. And we already see a bunch of states and a bunch of companies divesting from BlackRock because they saw the whole guilt fiasco that happened in the UK and how BlackRock basically blackmailed the Bank of England and basically was making them to put up or shut up or else we're not going to pay out your pension liabilities. People are seeing that and they're divesting. And so what, basically what I'm trying to get down to is that the Fed can raise rates and, and bankrupt BlackRock because they only have you know $30 billion of cash or whatever, which isn't a lot. And the faster they bankrupt BlackRock, the faster they bankrupt USCC and JP Morgan scoop in, swoop in and buy out USCC and have control full control of the issuance of USDC. So BlackRock, which is Davos backed, doesn't come in and rebirth their Euro dollar system. Because again, Euro dollar, the Euro dollar, offshore dollar markets, it's they're synonymous. That's being drained out because as Powell raises rates, that causes everyone else to raise rates. And he's also at the same time as those rates increase, five basis points above that is a reverse repo rate and so everybody's incentivized to just move all the cash reserves into an account at the Fed. And so basically, JP Morgan and Team Fed, as I call it, the commercial banks need to bankrupt Davos as soon as possible. So they have all the monetary uh, uh, control so they can keep an eye on whether or not this shadow money is being created out of their jurisdiction. So there's two things that, that I've sense. read that support that thesis. One is that people believe that instead of the U.S. getting a retail CBDC, the compromise will be USDC would be become the new digital dollar. And we already Maybe. know that 
if the U.S. government wants to seize your U- USDC, they can. Circle has already said they can take your money if you're a terrorist or some other label that they assign to you. So mm-hmm. it does have that permission quality that is desirable, I think, to big government. The second thing is that Jim Rickards has this thesis that he had introduced years ago that after the next financial crisis, BlackRock specifically would be given this SIFI status. And when the crash started to happen, the SIFI banks would be told they cannot sell. So I'm not familiar with SIFI. Strategically important financial institution. It's basically too big to fail. Okay. So is that... Is this like in uh, hypothetical? Like this hasn't happened, right? This is if. No. So part of the Dodd-Frank Act that happened after the 2009 financial right. crisis said that if there were another financial crisis, we're not going to do bail bailouts next time. We're going to do bail-ins, which right. means that the depositors in a bank would be on the hook for mm-hmm. the, the funds. You basically mm-hmm. wouldn't get your money back. What you would get is sh- the FDIC would take over any SIFI institution, create mm-hmm. a, a mirror institution, and then depositors would get shares in this new institution. So essentially the government would take over these banks. Mm-hmm. And Jim Rickards has this very specific thesis that BlackRock would be given this SIFI status because mm-hmm. they meet the criteria. And essentially it would let sure. the Treasury or the US government take over BlackRock. Right. I mean... They're basically almost wanting the same thing. But again, how right. fast can Pell keep raising rates and bankrupt BlackRock? Because BlackRock from the CARES Act basically got the same permission as the commercial banks to get access to the Fed window and basically get money at 0% interest or like near that. And that's not happening anymore, which is why BlackRock itself can go bankrupt. Because like all the, the debt that they take from government is now at four percent or like whatever it is and whatever it's going to be and that's why with monetary policy you are seeing these being weaponized against a globalist backed congress and so like all like it's it's a it's a good theory assuming that everybody in the united states is going to be lockstep in it but when you have a fed gone rogue and has decided no, the Fed's not going to be the bank of the the globe and bail everyone out. We're going to be America's bank. And it, it just doesn't jive, especially when you have these ideas from the World Economic Forum saying that corporations like BlackRock are going to replace nation states. That's not in the incentive of American sovereignists that are running the commercial banking industry. And so they're going to butt heads. And you, and that's why you have like the UN and and even Christine Lagarde coming out and saying, "Pal, stop raising rates. Stop. You're bankrupting us." Like they didn't actually say that, but that's what's happening. And so you're you're not going to go through this without ruffling feathers and stepping on toes and people, you know, getting Epstein for lack of a better word. So this is good. This is an optimistic viewpoint that the sort of dystopian globalist agenda out of Davos is not a done deal that we do have some influential people like Jay Powell advocating for a better system. Um, It's going to probably be a rough road for Europeans. So we send you much empathy, 
Uh, looks like China and Russia aren't on board with the Great Reset, that they will happily watch Davos burn. And Putin has publicly stated in his speeches that he's no fan of the globalists uh, and thinks that they're actually evil. Uh, so do you think this is going to take a long time to play out? Or is this something that we're going to be done through in the next couple months? It's a really good question. And uh, I mean, like Tom's one of my big follows, but I'm loving everything that Demartina Booth is saying. And the recent interviews that she's done is just kind of looking at the numbers of how well demand destruction is working, especially I, I think it's like a three X record from like monetary tightening and its effectiveness compared to the eighties when Volcker raised it to double digits. But like, there's a saying that monetary policy happens on a lag. And that's true, but what she's been saying is that it's it's happening a lot faster than we think, and it's okay. been happening like tightening has been happening in the background, which you know, in parentheses, secret stuff that we can't talk about. Uh, me, as if I'm like uh, boost conscience, <laughs> um, we're destroying the offshore dollar market. Okay. So, uh, I would like for this to happen sooner than later, and I think I think we are going to get that. Like, I'll, I'll just say like the the very like basic like throwaway of like 18 months. I don't know. I no no one can, can really get this stuff. And okay. I like, I'm not uh, a betting man, so I can't really give you a specific date, but I think it's going to happen a lot faster than we think. So by the and, time someone listens to this podcast, it probably won't have happened yet. It's going to be a while. No, no, definitely not. Okay. And, and like the midterms haven't even happened yet. So uh, regardless what happens on the political surface, uh, monetary policy is just going to get more hawkish. Now, there's another debate. Is Powell going to raise another 75 basis points? Or is are the things like the cyclical, like people like Nick Bossy I like to talk about, where instead of 75 basis points in December, maybe he'll go 50. And then in January, he goes 25. And then February, another 25. Or I haven't looked at the economic calendar like when they do this stuff. Okay. So you continue um, to raise, but just slow down the rate, the pace. Yeah, I mean, I would rather have Powell just, you know, be a hard ass and just go seventy five or hundred and like hold it at six percent if we get there in like February or March or whenever. But there's also an argument where if he slows down or if he doesn't raise as much as people expect then there might be some hopium and the markets do well. But then on the flip side of that, you've heard Jamie Dimon say, you know, we could easily see another 20 to 30% correction downwards from here. But either way, and I wrote about this recently too. Um, I'm actually going to find this article, but like whatever the narrative is, the Fed is able to just run with it and, 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 and make it so. So, um, let me see here. I'm gonna find it. Okay, so there's two scenarios. Like, what what is the 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 narrative? Like, scenario one, uh, scenario A, market does well, which means this gives Powell more room to raise rates. Like, we've been hearing that from Booth and others. But scenario B, to me, is like market does poorly and inflation is high. That means that the Fed needs to raise rates to combat inflation. So, like. Either way, like they win. Like Powell is just gonna run with whatever numbers he has and like use that to his advantage as he's been doing. So it's kind of like they can't really lose because they don't give a shit and they're just gonna 
do what they need to do to bankrupt Davos. Let's say Davos does get bankrupted. But do you think they're just going to sort of give up and be like, oh, well, we tried for a couple hundred years to colonize the world. Didn't no, they're not going to go out without a fight. Uh, man, like that's that's the $60,000 question or whatever the number is. I don't know. And it's scary to think about. Like some of these neocons, I'm sure, are just like bloodthirsty and they're willing to, you know, fight to the last Ukrainian and Russian or whatever NATO soldier, American. I mean, the only way that the Fed pivots is if they get America involved to fight their world war for them, just like World War One and Two, as Tom and I think uh, Alex and Alex have talked about on their show. It, it, it's scary and it's really sad. And I think a lot of this has to to do on like what the results of the midterm look like. I, I hope I'm not super dating this podcast. I don't know when it's going to go out, but it all matters like how rational of and purposeful of uh, purposeful minded and sovereignty oriented people can we get in in uh, the United States government. So I don't think that they're going to go. I mean, nobody wants a world war. I mean, other than like the sycophants, sycophant commie globalists that hate Russians and Chinese or just, you know, the global South as a whole, like nobody really wants to see this go down. Like the average American family provider, I mean, they just care about their bottom line and taking care of their kids and putting food on the table and all that jazz. No one really cares about going to war. And I think the war on terror had the scales fall from people's eyes. And I think especially COVID did and having the election stolen in 2020 did too. And, and people have said this, but there's this, this the results of the midterms are going to be contested. So I don't really know where it goes from here. I just know that the feds doing what the feds doing and what you can do as an individual is be heavy cash as, as, as much as you can if you're into Bitcoin and, and gold, it's it's a historical buying opportunity, a lifetime. So get in on that and just uh, keep your friends and family close. But I, I think things, uh, yes, they get worse before they get better, but I think they'll get better sooner than, than we think. And humans are amazingly resilient. Yeah. Which is a cool, cool quality we have. All right, Phil, this was awesome. Thank you. You explained so many things that are kind of timely and relevant and not being talked about very often or very widely, uh, which is kind of cool that Tom's thesis opened up our eyes a lot. And so I'm just yeah. doing our part to help spread the word that. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I feel guilty sometimes where I'm like, am I just like a Tom, like lightweight derivative? But <laughs> I, again, I think of this like a Lou Longin, same as Rothbardi, Misesian, like school of thought and looking at where we, where our systems are and how they've evolved and how they're evolving and for what purpose coming from that praxeology mindset. And so I'm really, I feel like I'm, I, I'm loud about this thesis because I find it to be true. And when I don't hear people looking further into this, when I'm in Twitter spaces with people that run hedge funds and I bring this up and, and I don't really get any pushback. I really just kind of get silence. 
and the pushback that I do get, I think it's just people that are butthurt because they know that LIBOR is going to be liquidated. <laughs> but uh, regardless, I really, I I'm, that- I'm wild about this thesis because I find it to be true. And when I don't hear people speaking truth, I think that they're either just naive, they're not, they're unaware, or they're being intellectually dishonest and they're doing a disservice to the public good. I think it's difficult at first, if you're a sound money advocate, to all of a sudden see the Fed as the good guy in this. I mean, mm-hmm. that's why I think it's it's contrary. So your yeah. cognitive dissonance is going to kick in at first, be like, what? Wait, yeah. I thought the whole problem was central banking. And now all of a sudden, the primary central bank, the U.S., Fed, they're on our side. That's just yeah. contrary to a lot of. But belief. again, everybody in the mafia gets along until someone steps on someone else's salami. Right. Like it all is broken down to praxeology, human action. Why is somebody act? What what is incentivizing someone to act in, in that way? So when you got the commercial banking cartel, and then you got global commies out of Europe saying, "Hey, we're gonna get rid of you guys," they're gonna stand up and say no. And like fuck your climate change. <laughs> it's really that that simple. You you just have authoritarians trying to extract the wealth of the productive private sector, and they they don't want to see us prosper. We it, it is that that like amazing pamphlet. I'm sure your audiences listened to it or read it, but if they haven't, it it really just kind of like reduce everything down to that like we are the thorn in their side like our prosperity is their kryptonite and it's only because we have a class of elites in america that care about the creation of private capital and prosperity of america our prosperity keeps them you know that the preservation of our prosperity is their preservation of their prosperity and the opposite is going along with what these global commies want. So they're just acting with purpose, out of survival, frankly. So if someone wants to connect with you or find out more about your work, what's the best place for them to go? Yeah, so I am pretty much only active on on Twitter. So my handle is Mr. Sue, M-R-P-S-E-U. So like a pseudonymous Um and you can just search in Phil Gibson. Um, I have a subset called Q Paul again, Quiet Parts Out Loud. Okay. And it's the link in, in my bio. So feel free. I mean, I write about this stuff twice a week. Friday is just kind of like a independent article, whatever idea I have. And then on Sundays, I release the sum report, which stands for stuff you missed. But it's just a look back and like what you missed when you were at work during the week that you can sit down on Sunday evening and just kind of get like a three bullet points of the things that are happening in macro and and geopolitics. And pretty soon I'm actually going to uh, start podcasting it again. I took a hiatus. I was busy with work and I actually uh, dumped drink on my laptop. And so the workflow and garage band, I didn't have access to, and I just wanted to uh, be ready at my very best. And now I'm at a point where I can. So uh, I don't know when this is going to go out, but by uh, by the end of this week, as we are recording this on the 7th of uh, November, I should have a podcast out on a Friday 
and it's going to be like an inaugural episode because I'm re-releasing the podcast. It used to be called A Boy Named Sue, but uh, it's going to just be called the, the Q-Paul podcast, the same name as the Substack. So nice. that's where, where you can find me. If you want to email me, it's hey Q-Paul, H-E-Y-Q-P-O-L at gmail.com for okay. business inquiries or whatever, or just shoot me a DM on Twitter too. But uh, We'll put your links to Twitter and your... Instagram your Substack in the show notes. So check the description if you're listening. Awesome. And uh, Molly, thanks a lot. I, I'm glad that we were able to uh, dish this out, have a conversation. I mean, uh, yeah, it's, it's wild times. I mean, again, we're just kind of speculating, but we're taking with everything that we see with a grain of salt and just, just uh, making hypotheses. But I love to have you on my show too. And, and uh, go, uh, more in depth to those um it's what what uh it, it wasn't a it wasn't just the cedar protocol it was uh the other one i think that you will but i know i love to dish out some of this, uh, more of these ideas with you and sure. uh i hope your listeners didn't get too lost in the weeds in this episode this was great thank you phil i really appreciate it you bet